Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea. Immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what resounds and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. Subscribe now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here. And right now, I'm at the home studio at Pond City Market. But earlier this year, I was in San Francisco, California, at the SF Sketchfest. And I was able to, uh, I was able to get Mr. Jonathan Colton into my hotel room, which, uh, which sounds sexy slash creepy slash like it was all a dream. I don't know, but, uh, Jonathan is great. He's, he's a musician and he is, um, actually one of John Hodgman's oldest friends. They, uh, those guys went to Yale together, which is, we talked about it in the episode, but it's kind of cool that they were just buddies in college and they each, uh, independently ended up being big shots in their field. So, uh, as it turns out, Jonathan is a really cool dude and, uh, sort of felt like a brother from another mother. The more we talked, the more things we had in common, we found out. And, um, we talk in this episode about the great, great Terry Gilliam sci-fi fantasy film Brazil, uh, which is a movie that I have seen quite a few times in my life, but hadn't seen in a minute. So it was fun to go back and watch that and then talk about it with Jonathan and get his insights on that and the music of Billy Joel. How about that for a teaser? So here we go with Jonathan Colton on Brazil. Where did you grow up, though? I grew up in Connecticut, uh, in a town called Colchester, which mm-hmm. is sort of in the middle of the state, and it is, um, it is sort of rural farmland, small town Connecticut, um, as opposed to the sort of ritzy New York, right, suburb, uh, suburb, uh, Connecticut. Um, and it was a, you know, small town with a town green and a gazebo and, and, uh, yeah, nice. got a McDonald's, I think after I had left town, yeah. which is too bad. <laughs> um, and, uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time in the woods, <laughs> playing in the woods, knocking over trees, setting things on fire. Same here. And I, uh, I didn't get cable until I was, you know, 13 years old. Same here. Something like that. So I sort of missed all of the. Yeah, that's funny. Initial, uh, um, uh, MTV. Mm-hmm. Stuff. I have a big, I have, that's one of my sort of culture gaps is I, there were a lot of bands that I didn't get into and music videos that I never saw because I just yeah. didn't have MTV for those. That was the way in. Early years. Back yeah. Then, you know? Yeah. 
And I remember some kids asked me, like, I, I met some kids that were, um, the sons of some neighbors of my parents and, and, uh, th- this is in another town and they, they had cable, they had had cable forever because it was some suburb and they, they asked me, what bands do you like? And I panicked <laughs> and I said, I said the only thing I could think of that I had seen a video of or a mention of a video. And I said, I don't know, like air supply. And they were like, air supply, <laughs> right? And I don't know why. I, said, I don't know why I said air supply because I didn't really like air supply. Yeah. They're not bad though. Well, <laughs> as an adult, you can sort of. I have get an appreciation for the craft. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's employed in the air supply, uh, yeah. works, but I don't, uh, I, I don't choose to listen to them. Right. I hear you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of had a similar thing. I lived on a street in the woods with five other houses. Mm hmm. But it wasn't a subdivision. Yeah. And we didn't have cable till a little bit later. Yeah. And, uh, actually we had, our road wasn't paved until I was about 10. Ours was paved until the second house away from us and then it went dirt road uh-huh. to the lake. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of traffic. Yeah. And I, I got made fun of a lot. I don't know about you. I mean, not like bullied or anything, but kind of poked fun of that I didn't live in the neighborhoods and stuff. And then. I got older and I realized like, this is fucking great. I live on two acres with a Creek. I know. And, uh, that's like what we all wish for now. That's fantastic. Well, I remember that when, uh, people in Colchester would find out what road I lived on, they would say, Oh my God, you live in the boonies. Right. Which is hilarious because Colchester is like like the middle of nowhere in Connecticut. Right. (laughs) So it's like, you probably live like a couple of miles from (laughs) there. Yeah. It's like two miles from there. But when you're a kid, that's forever away. Forever. The boonies. That's really funny. Yeah. Well, how did, um, movies factor in for you early on well we we had there was no movie theater in town um so there were you know you had to go you had to drive i would say at least 30 minutes to get to a movie theater um and where was that um there were a few east hartford east hartford had one of the had some sort of multiplex um uh i can't remember there was some place that had 99 cent movies yeah that we were, that were, uh, you know, movies that have been out for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another place that, uh, um, you could go to that showed, uh, Pink Floyd the Wall mm-hmm. on Saturday, Saturday nights at midnight. Yep. Alternating every other weekend with heavy metal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I would go, I would go, you know, of course I, I went with my, with my parents and, and, but it wasn't until I could drive that I got to see my own. You know, choose which movies I wanted to see and see movies with, right. with peers, really. So yeah. you're doing the the VCR thing, probably. VCRs, yeah, absolutely, big part of it. Um, and uh, and yeah, I you know there were a couple of there were a couple of kind of artsy, art house movie theaters around as mm-hmm. well. But I didn't come to those until I was in high school and met the right people. Right. <laughs> the, the shapers. Yeah, it's the shapers. That's right. Yeah, it's so weird to think about the. Um... How the way your life can go is so shaped by, in retrospect, kids yeah. that don't know what the hell they're don't doing. know what they're talking about at all. Like you could just go it, whatever direction. I know just by luck. No, I know, and and it's and it's true. If they're if they're if they're two years older than you, mm-hmm. you're like, wow, this person, this is a very worldly person, right? Who knows a lot more than I do, yeah. and I should listen to what they say. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I was. um I was a little church kid growing up, so I was one of the rare ones, I think, that that was going hard in a certain direction mm-hmm. with youth group and these kids that were looking back kind of rednecky, 
mm-hmm. uh, Baptist kids. Yeah. And then when I got 16, like 15 or 16, I met uh, like my secular friends, <laughs> which is literally what my other friends called them. Your secular church. friends. Like, you're friends with secular friends now. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and they're way cooler <laughs> than you guys. And um, so I took a hard turn at like 16. Wow. Um, Did and you I, become a bad kid? No, not bad. I was still a very good kid. Mm-hmm. And like, I didn't take my first drink of alcohol till I was, uh, 18 bordering 19 in college. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I was, I was still a good kid. Yeah. I had a, I had a weird double life because I was, I was a really good student. Um, and I was very, I was terrified of getting in trouble and I wanted the, I think me too. Yeah. The respect and admiration of the grownups and the people in charge. <clears throat> um, uh, but I also was, I mean, my favorite friends were, were bad, were bad kids. And like the, the, right. the small town Connecticut, um, kids that I knew were, I mean, there's a particular kind of like <laughs> driving around a small town and, mm-hmm. and like throwing cans at mailboxes and yeah. like just kind of little shitty, <laughs> fairly harmless, <laughs> harmless. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was great. It was great fun. It was really, felt very transgressive and exciting, mm-hmm. you know? And so to have that double life where I was a, I was a, I was a good kid who never got in trouble, but then, then I would hang out, I would hang out with all the bad kids and try out all the bad kid stuff. Right. Was, was very fun. But you weren't like getting arrested. No, I, no, 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 nothing, <laughs> nothing serious. Nothing serious. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Cause there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join, Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly... Join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please... Join us. On Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash Last Podcast to listen free. Were, uh, did you have siblings and stuff? Was it like movie nights with the family or? Yeah, I had, um, well, my, my parents were divorced when I was maybe four or five. And so I lived with my mom's stepdad during the weeks. And on the weekends, I, uh, went to visit my dad and stepmom. And they both had additional children with their new spouses. Mm -hmm. So I had, uh, at my mom's house, I had a sister who was eight years younger than me. Still is eight years younger than me. Okay. She has a so That's how time works. Mm-hmm. And then the other family, I had a, a sister who was eight years younger and a son, a, a brother. brother. <laughs> Thank you. Brother who is 10 years younger than me. Got so it. there was a big gap between me and the, and the kids. Right. And so I always still felt like an only child. I was also the only product of that original union. Uh huh. So I still had kind of my own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, scene and identity. So. Yeah, I mean, moving moving out with the family was still because the kids were still so young. It was me and my me and my parents, you know, right? Instead of so, I didn't have any siblings to uh, argue over movies with. When you're um, 
when there's a divorce young like that, because my parents didn't get divorced until I was 18. Mm. Um, so high school is just, you know, hell for me in right. a different way. Yeah. But do kids, <laughs> uh, do the parents, are they working overtime to try and like, not curry favor necessarily, but you know, they really want you to enjoy your time at my house. Well, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, because my mom, my mom was the, was the work week. Mm-hmm. And then my dad was the weekends. So it was a very different vibe. Yeah. It like was, my, that's an unfair advantage. Yeah. It's an unfair <laughs> advantage. Like my dad never had to deal with, with, with homework and, right. And, uh, and you know, um, me you up and going to school. Yeah. And also me, me playing with friends. Cause at my dad's house, I didn't have friends my own age. Cause mm-hmm. I was only there for, he would pick me up on Saturday and drop me off on Sunday. So I was right. there for 36 hours. So it wasn't like I was going to go over there and hang out with a neighborhood kid. Right. So it was really like the, my mom's house was, was, was me and school and, and my friends. And then my dad's was just this like weekend place that I went to. Yeah. So it was a very different vibe. And I don't know that they were. So dad wins. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, dad, as you said, dad has an unfair advantage. Dad is like, dad is like the fun, easy place. Right. Where I don't have to do homework. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and mom is the place where. Uh, the rubber actually meets the road and all the real stuff happens. Uh-huh. So yeah, I mean, I guess there was, I guess there was maybe a time when I was like, Oh, it's so much easier at my dad's house. Than right. Easier. But the, in yeah. hindsight, now I realize, <laughs> yeah, I realize why. God bless the moms, right? I, I love my parents equally. Okay. In well, case, that's in what case I really they listen to this to podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which parent do you love more? Yeah. Cause what does that have to do with movies? <laughs> uh, well, we might as well get into Brazil. What, um, how did that come into your life? Well, um, so, Brazil was one of those movies that, um, I don't know what kind of release it had, but in, in my world, it played at one of those art house, uh-huh. uh, movie theaters. And this, this friend who was the, the shaper, who was a few years older than me, mm-hmm. um, was very, uh, was very into, uh, uh, fancy, fancy intellectual things. Right. And so, uh, he liked to go see foreign films. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, independent films. And, um, so he, he was the one who, who said, let's go see this movie, Brazil. It's playing at this art house. That uh, first friend like that is so exciting. Oh man, it was so thrilling. You know, he took me to a, a Husker Du concert. Oh, Jesus. I didn't even like Husker Du, but I pretended to. Wow. Um, I tried to. Uh huh. And I, that was the, there were lesbians there. It was the first time I had ever met lesbians. Yeah. It was very exciting. That's great. But yeah, it was this whole other world. But so it was his, it was his influence and it was his, I think he actually drove, I think he actually drove me there because I could not drive at that point. It came out in 85. 85. I think you're my age, right? Born in 70? Born in 70. Okay. But I was born in December of 70. Right. So I was, so yeah, I was probably. We were both like 14. Yeah, you know, I was 14 or, or maybe just 15 when this, uh, when this movie came out. A uh, quick side note, the first place I ever drove when I turned 16 was a Billy Joel concert. <laughs> wow. Just thought I'd throw that out there. What tour? Thought you might appreciate that. Uh, unfortunately that was the bridge because that would have been, uh, 80, you know, mid eighties, Billy Joel. Yeah. That was when we were still pr- trying to pretend that Billy Joel was still good. Yeah. And I, uh, not ashamed. I've been a Billy Joel fan my entire life. Me too. Uh, Me too, House brother. This was the first record I ever bought. My brother and I split it. We each paid like two fifty. Went down to Turtles. Oh yeah. Paid like five bucks for Glass Houses. Oh and, yeah. And uh, I've seen him probably six or seven times over the years, including mm-hmm. you know his most recent Atlanta tour. Yeah. And he still sounds great. He's great. 
It's wonderful. He's great. I love him so much. And yeah, the bridge. I have uh, I have a picture of me wearing a my concert T-shirt from the bridge tour, which oh, I don't know if you, you remember was to? a piano uh-huh. with a with sort of pink and blue sp- oh, yeah. spray paint shape of a piano. Very eighties. Terrible, awful shirt. terrible T-shirt. Uh-huh. But there's a picture of me holding my driver's license and pointing at it, wearing my the bridge. Billy Joel. We are very almost the same person. This is why we're friends. This is why we're friends. (laughs) I battled Roderick on Billy Joel one year at Max FunCon. It's funny uh, because he kind of got up on his high horse. (laughs) And I uh, would not back down about, you know, being shamed into being a fan. And then about between that Max FunCon and the next, I saw him tweeting about some VIP hookup to a Billy Joel show. I saw that too. And he was like, oh, geez, like I kind of knew the he's words and it's kind of great. He's a good songwriter, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so, you dummy. Yeah, I got him too. Uh, I know. Like there are 20 Billy Joel songs that most people know close to by heart. The guy, and that's the not guy's, an accident. The guy's greatest hits album is all legitimate hits. Yeah. That never happens. Everybody's greatest hits album is like the two hits and then other songs that right. they think are good. Yeah. That guy has a string mm-hmm. of very successful hits. Yeah. And all the, the <clears throat> albums like the deep cut. I mean, they're not even deep cuts to me. They're just great songs. I, lo- I, lo- I mean, there, there, there are very few songs I don't like. Uh, there is a period where I feel like he was at his best and the, and after that, after that, I kind of lost, I kind of lost my, I feel like he'd lost like Stormfront. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, no, the bridge wasn't very good either, but the, the, uh, Stormfront had hits on it that I didn't think were very good. Yes, I agree. I agree. And that's, that's when I sort of like, it sort of fell off. But you know, the, the, all the, the albums, the albums before that, Glass Houses, yeah. fantastic. You know, even, even Turnstiles, I really like. They're all great. Um, what's the one with, uh, pressure and, oh my God, Nylon Curtain. Nylon Curtain. A masterwork. Yeah. And that was when we were, I feel like, those that was the early MTV sort of once I had gotten MTV. Yeah. So pressure and you know I was a little kid that thought like Goodnight Saigon man he's just really <laughs> yeah I know he's just so there for the veterans man <laughs> I know I know. <laughs> so funny to look back on I know a little sensitive Chuck <laughs> I know I had the same response to that song I still get a little teary listening to that song it's a good song all it's right well I'm glad song. I brought up Billy Joel then yeah me too. Um, so 1985 Brazil. Yeah. Um, obviously written and directed by, uh, the great Terry Gilliam, John the Price, Michael Palin, De Niro, who, mm-hmm. um, shows up in the first act. And I think even as a kid, I didn't know the rule yet. Like if a De Niro shows up in the first act, he's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna show up and play a big part of the second Do something act. in the second or third act. <laughs> um, Cold War allegory, like Thatcher's England. Mm-hmm. I think the IRA had a lot to do with what went on. Very 1984, yep. Orwellian. Mm-hmm. But um, only Gilliam's third movie. And now that we've seen his body of work, it's kind of remarkable that he was able to make this movie at that point in his career, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how he got away with it because it's it's very, it's very strange. I mean, it's and it's very visually I feel like it's very visually strange. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the things I, I loved about it. And that's, you know, this guy, this friend of mine <laughs> bringing to me this, to this movie, you know, it was definitely like, Oh, right. I mm-hmm. get why this is a cooler movie. Right. Than movies that are at the, at the cineplex. Right. Cause it's weird. Cause yeah. it's different and strange. And it's, it's somebody's, you know, it's somebody's vision. All right. Um, and so that, but yeah, I agree. It's like, it's like nobody, nobody gets to make their, their real vision uh-huh. the third time out. Yeah. And I just remember that poster too, just captivating me yep. with all that stuff exploding Coming out, of, out of his head. Uh, who's 
Jonathan Price. Is that even him on the poster, though? Because mm-hmm. I looked at it today, and I was like, is that even Jonathan Price? Now that you say it, I'm not sure. Or is it a, an artist rendering that just doesn't look so much it like It might Jonathan be an artist Price. rendering, like the artist renderings of the Star Wars characters on the bed sheets. Right. You knew who they were supposed to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so from the beginning, and I just rewatched it, uh, on the plane, as mm-hmm. I told you. And, uh, my only beef with the movie still is that it, it feels a little long. Hmm. Um, and I know that was very famously with Universal Studios. He had a, a war with them over the length and the ending. Yeah. And, uh, they, they trimmed it. At, well, I mean, I think it's two hours and 20 minutes. They trimmed it to 94 minutes, which I can't even imagine that version. That's how could so that, much how movie. could that be? I don't know. That's I mean, cr- there's a little fat he could have trimmed to me, but yeah, certainly not 40 minutes. Well, it definitely, I mean, the, it definitely has two endings. Um, right. But you, that second ending, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the Terry, that's the other thing that I, I understand why they had a battle about that because you're, right. you're not allowed to end a movie. Right. In that depressing a way. Yeah. And he went, he went to war. I mean, someone even wrote a book about that. Yeah. His battle with Universal and, um, Sid Scheinberg, I think was the executive mm-hmm. who he just, I mean, he, uh, I read an article today. He held up a photo of him on Good Morning America. Yeah. Cause they said, you're having trouble with getting this movie released with Universal. And he said, nope, it's this guy right here, <laughs> Sid Scheinberg and, um, just very public. And Terry Gillum is obviously he's, he's made a career out of sort of fighting the man. Yeah. Right. And making waves, so yeah. Uh, well, and I, 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 I remember seeing uh, uh, the Fisher King. You remember that that other Terry Gilliam movie? Loved it. Um, great, and I, great movie. I remember when I saw that movie. The ending. I don't know if you remember the ending, but the ending sort of pans up from Robin Williams, and then fireworks appear mm-hmm. in the sky. Yeah, and it's this very clear like. This is the ending. Everything worked out just fine. And I, if, even then I was like, Oh, this is Terry Gilliam giving the finger. Right. <laughs> right. To like, people is that happy enough for you? Yeah. How's this? You might as well this? like, uh, had a laser shoot a heart in the sky. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That was such a good movie. I forgot about this. Yeah. It was game. a great movie. Yeah. Very sweet love story. Yeah. Um, so uh, obviously the, uh, he sets it up with central services and the ducks uh-huh. in this movie. Um, and D U C T S for those of you listening. Yes. Not quacking ducks. Right. Uh, and I read a bunch of articles today about it. Um, what do you think the ducks are? <laughs> uh, oh, I'm impressed that you did, you did research. So you would, you would sound smart about this. Not smart. Just, you know, informed. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what idea. do I think the ducks are? I think the ducks are, um, I mean, you know, they are, they are everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're in every shot. Right. And even in the fanciest office mm-hmm. or the fanciest, uh, uh, apartment, because right. there is a real, you see all the, there is a real class, layers, layers and layers of class. Mm-hmm. You see, you see these very poor dwellings and these very rich dwellings. And no matter where you are, there are ducts everywhere. Right. And in the French restaurant, even in the French yeah. restaurant, they're, they're part of the fountain uh-huh. in the middle, um, in his, in his mother's apartment, which is the fanciest place you ever, you right. ever see. They're all through, through there in the, in that, in that party. And, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, the, I haven't thought about it too much, so I'm not going to sound as smart as I wish I was, but it feels like, <laughs> it feels to me like the ducks are just, uh, a sign of, 
so many layers of bad planning and not uh, figuring stuff out and not bothering to go back and fix things. And they mm. are, they're, they're a sign of, um, you know, that everything in that movie in the production do- design, everything is sort of overly complicated and mm-hmm. doesn't quite work right. Yeah. And nobody knows how to fix it. I mean, it's bureaucracy, uh-huh. you know, and it's, and it's a uh, presumably a bureaucracy that has led to this situation where like, we can't put these ducts anywhere else. Right. But in your face. Right. <laughs> and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. And even if there was something we could do about it, nobody knows which paperwork right. to file to get them, to yeah. get them out of there. So I, I feel like that's what it is, sort of a manifestation of the bureaucracy and how it is getting in everybody's way. Yeah. No, I think that's perfect. I mean, it's, I mean, he's not exactly subtle with what he's trying to say. I, I think no, I, it's, I, I it's like the word bureaucracy like 14 times yeah. in this little document. <laughs> right. But, um, for sure. And they, uh, and just sort of a sign to me of just the, the fingers of the government are everywhere. Yes. Um, not that necessarily that I thought that they were pumping anything through there or listening in, but, no, but you, you cannot escape that. It's just a part of the fabric that yeah. it's the water that you're swimming in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the whole thing comes in motion. Oh, and to what you said about nothing working, that's a almost like a plot device. Yeah. Like, that drives a lot of the things forward is something doesn't work as it should. That's right. Uh, in this weird future past. That's right. Yeah. The, um, yeah, there's that scene where he's, uh, he sees Jill in the lobby and he's in the elevator mm-hmm. and he can't get to her because the <laughs> elevator stops <laughs> yeah. and then it goes up and then it goes down to the uh-huh. basement. Um, yeah. And I was also, cause I watched it, uh, I watched it to get ready too. And I, I forgot how much I loved, uh, the phones. Yeah. The telephones, which make this terrible, like, eh, yeah. eh, when they ring. <laughs> like, that's not the original ring. It's probably that ring is broken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And then when you answer them, when you answer them, they have all these, they have all these, like, sort of audio jacks on them with different colors. Uh-huh. And then they're the matching audio jacks. And to, and every time you answer a phone or make a call, you have to, it's unclear exactly how it works, but you, you have to plug in the right color into the right color in yeah. order to, it's like each one is its own switchboard. Each one is its own switchboard. Yes. It's so crazy <laughs> and it's so annoying. And it's the, and I love that there's stuff like that, like the ducts and like the, like the phones and the broken elevators and the computers. Yeah. Which are these tiny screens with these big magnifiers. Big mind <laughs> magnifiers on them. Another like band-aid solution. Yeah. Um, and everything's on the fritz and all the characters are just sort of floating through as if like, well, there's nothing we can do about it, which of course is a very British. Right. It feels like a very British thing. Yeah. It's just how it is. Yeah, for sure. We'll just deal with this mess. Um, yeah, that's really interesting how, well, and it's also kind of, I don't know about the history of steampunk, but that's certainly the first time I don't, I don't think he invented it, but that's the first time I saw anything yep. that looked like this weird future past where they're wearing clothes from the forties. Right. But it was the the future. It's really sort of hard to pin down exactly when it is. Where when it happens, yeah. Because the, the the computers are have old typewriter keys, right? Uh, but they're clearly networked. They have they have networked, right? Computer banking, right? But then they're also sending messages <laughs> through the pneumatic tubes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and none of those work. Quite none of those work either. <laughs> quite yeah. right either. It's really <laughs> funny. I mean, he's it, Terry Gilliam. Just strikes me as uh, I don't know about angry, but just. He's, he's saying a lot of things in this movie. It's not just like, well, let me tackle bureaucracy. Yeah. He's got a bone to pick with a lot. Yes, he does. And I, I will say, I was thinking about it <clears throat> in anticipation of the conversation. I, you know, this is, again, I saw this movie when I was 
14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And my mind was so blown that because, and I think because I hadn't really been exposed to some of these ideas before in such a yeah. powerful way. And it, I, and because I, atta- I connected with this movie so strongly at that age, I have no idea if it's good or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. I feel like it is, but I, but just imagining showing this movie now to somebody who had never mm-hmm. seen it, I don't, I don't know if it would, if it would resonate in the same way that I still, cause it still hits me right where I live. Yeah. I and think I, it was part of that is a product of how old I was when I saw it. I think, I think it's a good movie. I think it was way ahead of its time, obviously. Yeah. And it's one of those where I was, when I was looking around for articles, there are a bunch of articles that like, let's look at Brazil 30 years later hmm. and 25 years later. Um, that, that to me is a sign of a movie. That is a good movie. It did some good work. Yeah, you don't see, you know, Ishtar 30 years on articles. <laughs> Maybe you should, though. <laughs> that might be great. And there are some things about it that are weirdly relevant today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, in particular, the, the you know, terrorists, mm-hmm. the terrorist bombings and the fear of terrorism used to justify a sort of totalitarian yeah. uh, surveillance-heavy regime. Uh-huh. It's right in there. Right. <laughs> and I wasn't thinking about that in 1985. No, of course not. And the government just list, um, not even listening in, but just the, the big brother thing mm-hmm. with, uh, even companies like, uh, like, I don't want to pick on Google necessarily, but it feels like it's sort of happening in plain view now. Yeah. And, and everyone's complicit. Well, and I think, I feel like Terry Gilliam in 1985, you would you would have said, oh, you're, he's kind of a paranoid mm-hmm. person, but yeah, he's kind he of right, right on the money. <laughs> he's pretty right. <laughs> paranoid or visionary? <laughs> uh, oh, it's funny here. I have down uh, twenty-seven B stroke six. That, yeah. That's been my go-to joke for about thirty years <laughs> for just various. Things. Do you have a twenty-seven B stroke six? Yeah, I don't know why, but that one stuck with me from when I was a kid, and I've used it <laughs> over and over again all over the place. And the other one uh, I say sometimes from this movie is, uh, uh, this is your receipt for your husband, and this is this my, is my receipt, receipt for, for your receipt. receipt. <laughs> so great. Did you know that the first computer bug was an actual moth? Did you know that x-rays were used as entertainment at kids' birthday parties? I'm Marin. I'm Greg. And for our new podcast, Surprisingly Brilliant, we've been collecting some of the most shocking, inspiring, and downright bizarre stories from science history. From space mysteries to stolen dinosaurs, you'll find it in Surprisingly Brilliant from Seeker. Season 1 launches March 26th. Go subscribe now so you don't miss it, and listen to Surprisingly Brilliant on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I don't can't remember the other guy's name, but Hoskins and his uh, buddy, yes, Bob Hoskins and his mechanic friend. Uh-huh. One of the great scenes, yes, when they come in to fix the uh, his duct, yes, because he makes the he makes the call, he makes the emergency call, mm-hmm. um, and then of course the renegade <clears throat> heating engineer, yeah, De Niro, uh, De Niro shows up, but they but they yeah when they arrive at the door and the looks on their faces, mm-hmm. they're already there to give him a hard time. They're, well, yeah, they're like they're they're they feel like mafia. Yeah, they're like, they feel like government agents. Yeah. Which I guess is what they are, sort of. I guess what they are, yeah. Because they're all a part of the big, um, central services, right. Ministry of Information. They literally, they work on the ducts. Right, exactly. Uh, so I guess let's get in a little bit to the dream life that he's living. Mm. Um, 
he has these daydreams. Everyone that's listening has probably seen the movie. If you haven't, he has these daydreams where he is uh, literally uh, a hero saving a damsel in distress mm-hmm. uh, who he ends up meeting in real life, uh, Jill, mm-hmm. uh, played by an actress who disappeared. Yes. After, I think I looked her up today. She was around till about the early 2000s and then right. no one ever heard from her again. Right. Um, did uh, And I read some um, articles where people have said, like, she does not really exist. He yeah. is actually her. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I buy all that, but I was curious to get your take. Well, yeah, I've thought a lot. I've watched this movie many times and I always, I always play the game of deciding when, when it flips from reality to dream. Mm-hmm. Because in the beginning of the movie, it's, it's clear when that is happening because yeah. it's when he's asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it starts to, the dream life starts to bleed into the real world. And of course, at the end, there's the seamless, transition from reality to dream and you don't quite know when it's happening, which right. I suppose opens the door for saying that it happens earlier. I, I mean, I don't know if I buy, I don't think it's necessary to make it that complicated for her to not be real. Um, uh, I mean, I suppose that's one reading of it, but it's not, not the one that I prefer. Yeah. I like that. She's real also because it's a, it's a, it's a very romantic, very romantic idea to be uh, dreaming about your dream girl. And then you meet her, meet her in real life. Right. And I think, uh, I mean, when I was 15, the idea, the idea that you would, you would stumble, stumble into this person that you had been dreaming about and she would be, she would be kind of a tough girl with a butchy haircut and a bomber jacket. <laughs> and you... <laughs> And you would think you were saving her, but really she was saving you. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of my fantasy. Yeah. Uh, at that age and maybe probably still today. Right. <laughs> but, I'm with you. But that, but that, uh, so yeah, no, I don't want her to be a figment of his imagination. That's terrible. Yeah. I don't, I don't buy it either. Yeah. Um, but well, plus he, um, when he fights the, the weird golden samurai, yeah. he eventually has that strange kind of Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker moment where, the mask comes off and it is, and it's him and it's him. Mm-hmm. So I don't, that doesn't jibe to me with him being right uh, with the with, Jill, with Jill being him too. Yeah. Interesting though. Uh, and of course the great, uh, we have to mention, uh, his mom, the great Catherine Helmand, mm-hmm. who, uh, in, in a youngish, um, Jim Broadbent as her plastic surgeon. Yes. And yet another statement he's making, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the movie with the plastic surgery and, uh, that also doesn't work. Right. Um, but these, these surgeons who think they are like godlike. Uh huh. So there's just, there's so many statements that he's making in this movie. Right. And the consum- consumerism. Yeah. The, the absolutely consumerism. There's a, there's a Christmas scene and there's somebody holding a, uh, holding a sign that says consumers for Christ. Uh huh. <laughs> Which is very funny. Yeah. I never noticed that actually until yesterday. <laughs> and all of the, uh, all of the, all the posters that are very, um, uh, sort of, uh, Home front propaganda posters. The, yeah. uh, uh, loose, loose talk is news talk. Uh huh. <laughs> Suspicion breeds confidence. Yeah. Here was one of my favorites. Don't suspect a friend. Report him. Yeah. <laughs> be safe. Be suspicious. <laughs> be suspicious. Very good. Uh, and, uh, he and Jill obviously finally meet in real life and they finally, um, have a great, uh, first kiss and, and, uh, presumably make love because they wake up together. But the, one of the, Creepiest lines in movie history, I think, is when they finally meet each other after he has, quote, killed her by removing her from the record space. Mm-hmm. And she says, care for a little necrophilia. That is an unfortunate <laughs> line. 
I'm just too bad about that line. It's very unfortunate. It's a little cringeworthy. Uh-huh. When yeah. I when I saw it yesterday, I'd, I'd forgotten that line. I went, oh yeah, probably you know, gone a different. I was going to say it's the kind of line that looks good on the page, but I don't think it's the kind of. I don't think it even looks good on the page. You can almost see her it, when she's delivering that line. She's right. like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. Uh, and apparently, Gilliam had a. He did not like her performance. Oh really? And ended up cutting a lot of uh, her her performance in that movie. Oh, that's a shame. It is. She I, was like, uh, for the eighties, it's, you have to kind of go back to that time period. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, she was also in Chud. So she was sort of that eighties B movie actress anyway. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in some ways I feel like it's a fault of the, of the writing because the, you know, I hate to, I hate to frame it this way. But the, in terms of female characters in this movie, uh-huh. there's not a lot to chew on. There's his, there's, no. his, there's his mom. Um, but you know, his mom and his mom's friend, but they, they're both these sort of cartoonish, you know, um, uh, they are women, but they're, but they're not, they're not desirable personalities. Yeah, they're, they're sort of props. They're sort of props and they're kind of awful people. And the friend's daughter who, the friend's uh, daughter who literally yeah. barely talks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, um, and then you have um Jill and she is she is such a straight straight character. Everybody else is very broad. Mm-hmm. All the other characters are written written in this very broad way. And then Jill is just kind of there. She's just kind of a normal person. And I feel like it was a weird casting choice. Yeah. And 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 I agree, weirdly written uh and weirdly named. Like even the name Jill. Jill is just <laughs> I guess it's of the time but I don't know. I think he kind of didn't make all the right moves there with her character. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. But I, I, I liked her performance. I mean, as I, as I say, I kind of had a, a crush on her. Right. Cause of her bomber jacket. Yeah. And she drove a semi. Yeah. <laughs> pretty sweet. <laughs> it was pretty sweet. Uh, and then, um, eventually we get to that weird third act where Michael Palin's character, uh, is revealed to be this sort of tor- torture doctor. Uh huh. Um, and the the baby face baby mask monsters mm-hmm. are coming to get him. Tuttle comes back in as a legit part of the resistance, mm-hmm. and the, the whole third act is just kind of nuts. It is totally bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what of what was already kind of a weird movie. Yes. Well, and that's where and that's where the uh, the dream life and the real life start to bleed together in a way that's right. becomes a little bit hard to follow. Uh-huh. Um, and you start. I mean, at least when I first watched it, I had to start making allowances for what was what was allowed to happen in the actual world mm-hmm. because it wasn't clear that we had shifted. Yeah, but like I remember the in that escape sequence where um, Tuttle is covered in covered in paper and literally sort of eaten by mm-hmm. paperwork. You know, at the, at the when I first watched that, I didn't know we were in Dream World, so I was right. like, oh, I guess that. I guess that's, I guess this reality includes that kind of thing. I, but <laughs> yeah, then of course that can happen. That wasn't it was part of the dream. Well, so what's your, um, <clears throat> what's your take on the ending? I mean, I, I know, uh, it's uh, had two endings. One is they call it the love conquers all, uh-huh. which I guess I don't I haven't even seen it, but I guess it just ends with them happily forever after in the, in the countryside. Right. Well, so yeah, there's the, in a way, I feel like you could, I mean, you also could have ended it, you know, when they're, when they're at his mom's apartment and right after the necrophilia line, 
which would be a terrible place to end the movie on that line. Or you can end it right before that line. <laughs> Maybe cut that line, write a different line for her. I don't know. I, yeah. I'm not. A, I'm not a movie maker. I don't know how to solve these problems. Right. But then you know the the sort of iris of uh, of uh, silk sheets kind of closes up, and uh-huh. that that could have been the end. Yeah. There's a few a few loose ends, but then then they get picked up, uh, and then then there's that whole escape sequence. And then, yeah, so I guess there's another place to end it is when they are, when they have dropped the house in the, in the country and we were panning away from mm-hmm. the, you could end it there. And then of course we come back to, uh, present day reality and he's right. still in the chair. So was it all, uh, I'd say it was all a dream, that old trope, but yeah, well, I, my take, so I had, I had a slightly new take on it this time when I watched it, but. Um, I, I think the first time I watched it, I, I didn't, I, I couldn't follow it enough to know when we had transitioned in, mm-hmm. in and out of dream, but the, I definitely took it that he had not, that he had imagined the escape at okay. the end and that he was still, that he was really had just been tortured until he lost his mind. So he never, uh, right. So where does it stop? So he never got yeah. out of the chair. I, I, this is what I, the, my theory is, my theory is they, He's, uh, he's strapped into the torture chair. Mm-hmm. Jack comes, um, and right at the point that he's coming at him with the pokey thing, uh, that is when Jack gets shot. Right. And Tuttle, uh, comes repelling in with his team of renegade so heating he, engineers. That so would make sense. That, that, that I think is the beginning yeah. of his, he's clicking into fantasy, uh-huh. uh, dream mode to sort of protect himself from, right. from what is happening. Um, but in reality, what's happening? He's just getting he's just getting tortured, um, and then his his mind breaks, and that's the end. And there is no escape. Yeah. And Jill and Jill was shot in the scene where he was picked up. Right. So that's I think I buy that. That's the and for me that's the when the first time I watched it, we got to the end, snap back to him in the chair, and I was just crushed mm-hmm. because that's when I did that math and said, oh, Jill is dead, and he's he's been tortured and he didn't escape. Right. Um, but I noticed, uh, this time when I watched it, I noticed that, um, uh, Jack and, uh, Mr. Helpman, who are there with him at the end, when mm-hmm. we come back, the lines that they say are, uh, Mr. Helpman says, uh, I think we've lost him. Yeah. And Jack says, yep, he's got away from us, mm-hmm. which is that those particular turns of phrase <clears throat> imply that he has, he, literally he has gotten away. He, they have lost him. Right. Because, and, and we see him in the chair and he's humming the tune yeah, the of the song Brazil uh-huh. and he's smiling. And, and, uh, and so I think, um, I think, and I hadn't thought of this shade of it, but he has escaped. He has escaped them. Mm-hmm. Because he was able to mentally escape. He has created this, he has, right. he has actually created this reality in his head. Right. And he's smiling. And he's smiling. Right. And he actually got, he went into that reality. So it's not as, if you look at it that way, it's not the most dark, disturbing ending. Yeah. That you could imagine. No, it's slightly backed off from that. <laughs> right. It's not fireworks in the sky. It's not fireworks in the sky. But it's yeah. close. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I buy that. Yeah. I like that. Um, I had a little bit of trivia in here, but only one that really stands out to me is this was also River Phoenix's favorite movie. Really? So I knew he and I would have been friends. <laughs> Uh, all right, we finish here, Mr. Colton, with two quick segments, one called What Ebert Said. This movie is a complete disappointment. 
I go back and read a portion and see what Roger Ebert thought of these movies. And um, he did not like it. Really? No. And, and it actually critically did pretty well. Hmm. Um, it won very famously when, and you probably know this, when he uh, was batting Universal, he secretly had a bunch of private screenings for film critics um, before it was released to show his version and that is what eventually got it its ultimate regular release. Wow. Was that the critics started buzzing about enjoying the movie. And it won the L.A. Uh, Film Critics Award. Uh, so it was well-reviewed for the time. But Ebert gave it two stars and said this. Uh, the movie is very hard to follow. I've seen it twice, and I'm not sure exactly who all the characters are or how they fit. Uh, perhaps it is not supposed to be clear. Perhaps the movie's air of confusion is part of its paranoid vision. There are individual moments that create sharp images, but there seems to be no sure hand at the controls. Hmm. Um, I feel like Roger Ebert maybe half watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I bet I don't, mm, I can't really see that criticism. I don't, I don't see it either, but he does tap into one thing that I don't, um, it's not a criticism for me, but Gilliam strikes me as a kind of filmmaker who feels like, He's in over his head sometimes. Yes. And, but enjoys that way of working. Yes. Like it, he probably purposely creates that. Yeah. Well, and Brazil kind of strikes me as that sometimes. Yeah. I feel like I would not be surprised if his, if his MO when working on a film is to be kind of careening out of control the yeah. whole time. Like and let's create chaos on the edge. And well, mm -hmm. that, that, uh, the, was it Don Quixote? Yeah. That, you know, that whole, that whole story mm -hmm. of him trying to make that movie. It's just so, so crazy. And I, watching that documentary, you get the sense. I never saw that. Was it good? It was good. It was really interesting. And it was definitely, it was definitely a portrait of a guy who, who like had bitten off way more than he, he could chew. Mm -hmm. And this time it got him. Right. You know, and, but it does, it didn't always. And, the, and I feel like you can, you can, you can feel that. I mean, it's, it's crazy. The visuals are so crazy. And yeah. those baby, those baby monsters. They're truly covered horrifying. with netting. They're so creepy and yeah. weird. Um, and, uh, and all those scenes, all those fantasy scenes, you know, could have, could have gone south in the most terrible way. Yeah. In the process of getting them on film. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, that's, I think you do, there's something to be said for being, um, really audacious in that way. Yeah. I mean, if I wrote that, if I wrote that out and said, this is what I'm going to do when I make my movie, I would be terrified to, yeah. I would be too afraid to actually try to make it. Yeah. He, he's the classic example of a true, true visionary who sounds like he will not accept anything less than that crazy fever dream in his head. Yeah. It's probably terrible to work for. I, I bet you, <laughs> I bet you're right. There's probably not a lot of people that was like, oh yeah, it was just a pure pleasure. It was really fun. <laughs> I think he is making the, the Don Quixote movie though. Finally. That's, that's what I heard. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and then finally five questions with Jonathan Colton. Uh, what's the first movie you remember seeing in the movie theater? Um, I think I am, I feel like the first movie I saw in the movie theater was probably Star Wars, but I don't remember mm -hmm. the first time I saw Star Wars. The first memory I have of seeing a movie in a theater was when my grandmother <laughs> took me to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, uh, and I was, I was maybe what, seven or eight or something like that. When was this? I, I feel like we were like fourth grade, maybe a little older. Yeah. So maybe eight, seven, yeah. seven eight, nine, something like that. And so I, um, uh, I, and of course I loved, I loved the movie, but my poor grandmother who had taken me to this movie, I was just thinking about now that I have a, I mean, I have an eight year old child mm -hmm. 
And so now when I think about um, bringing an eight-year-old child to a movie where uh, a Nazi during a fistfight gets uh, cut into pieces by an airplane <laughs> propeller, my poor grandmother. Yeah. And, and one melts. <laughs> Many, not one. A hundred <laughs> melt. melt. I know. I can't. She must have been like, oh, God, I shouldn't have brought him to this movie. But, of course, I loved it. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty funny. Uh, yeah, there was. I mean, I saw Star Wars, too, obviously. And we were both, like, six years old. Yeah. And I remember seeing it sort of. Yeah. Several times, but Raiders was that first. That was the one that real, like visceral experience as a kid. Yeah. That's the only one that I have. That's the first one that I really have a conscious memory of. Yeah. Um, first R rated movie that you ever saw. I tried very hard to think of the first R rated movie that I ever saw. And I couldn't because, and I think it's because of the movie theater situation. I think probably the first R rated movie that I saw was, um, was a, uh, something that, we rented at the video store and of sure. course I wouldn't have known it was R because oh. I, it, they just, videos just kind of came into my house. Right. Right. I, didn't, I wasn't really responsible for them. So I couldn't say, but I will say that I have a, speaking of our movies, uh-huh. I once uh, took a date to see the movie, the accused. Uh, was that the Jodie Foster? Jodie Foster, uh, rape movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a good date movie. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't know that. Wow. How'd the date go? It was great. Yeah. We had a nice time. Was, we, we both agreed that it was terrible. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, what they did to her in the movie. It was a good movie. Yeah. No, it was a really good movie. And actually, you know, that's very, uh, forward thinking of you, actually, in a way. I was woke. I was woke even then. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? Um, do you remember doing so recently? I now I am too lazy to walk out of a bad movie, and mm-hmm. I don't have as many principles as I did when I was a young person. Right. Um, and now I'm mostly excited about sitting in a chair mm-hmm. for a long time in, in, a, the dark. in a dark room and maybe getting a chance to take a quick nap. <laughs> so no, I'm not going to walk out of a movie. But I do. I and I think this may be the only time that I walked out of a movie. Um, is I walked out of Beetlejuice. Oh, wow. Which surprises everybody that I tell. Mm-hmm. But I didn't care for, I didn't care for his performance. I thought it was so broad. <laughs> it was a little broad for my taste. And I was also there with my girlfriend and she didn't like it. Yeah. That can always play and a part is the yes, setting. And yeah, it's like if with. you're, if you're, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're doing drugs with somebody and they're not, and they're not feeling it. Yeah. It's, it's just like, oh, forget it. Right. I'm neither am I. <laughs> so I think it was that kind of situation. Yeah, it was, I had. Do uh, you know Nate DeMeo of the Memory Palace podcast? Oh, yeah, I know the I know the podcast, but I don't know him personally. Nate was on, and he he left a I can't remember what movie, but he left a pretty good movie because he wanted to go make out, and I was like, well, well, that's yeah. Th- there are extenuating circumstances. That's reasonable. And I find too, especially at our age, it's um, I don't get to go to the movies much at all, and yeah. I damn sure don't take any chances on no this this could be shitty. <laughs> You know, like all the movies I see in the theater are probably really, really great. Yeah. Or it's a comic book movie that, you know, I like, oh, okay, I got to see Justice Yeah, League. I also have come to feel like, eh, most movies are probably pretty shitty. Yeah. <laughs> um, guilty Pleasure. Um, yeah, I, I would say, um, uh, The Fifth Element. Yeah, that wouldn't, people I, love that movie, but it's not the greatest movie. It's a, it's a really, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a pretty divisive movie. Yeah. I, I, I saw it, I saw it with a group of, uh, I had this job writing software in the, for a small company in New York and 
they, on some Fridays, would take everybody out, would close the office early, and we all go out to see a movie together. And so I saw The Fifth Element under those circumstances, and it was the kind of thing where I we, we were all sitting there watching the movie, and I was just, like, dazzled, and it was fun. It was a thrill ride. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really creative and inventive, and I'd never seen anything like it before. And then, and then the, you know, the lights came out, and we all stood up, and I was like, I sort of looked around, smiling okay. wide-eyed at everybody, like, yeah. wasn't that great? And I could tell from everybody's faces that they had all sort of made this group decision that that, that movie really sucked. Oh, uh, that sucks. And they made it early on. Yeah. And they couldn't enjoy it at all. Groupthink. Yeah. And I, I, I don't even know how they communicated with each other, but they clearly <laughs> had gotten their story straight. And I was the only sucker who really loved that movie. Yeah. And I've met a few people who were like, ugh, that movie is such garbage. But I really, I really think it's, it's great. I mean, I recognize it's a little, it's a little trashy in places, but right. I think it's got some really good, really good storytelling. Well, that's the definition of a guilty pleasure. Well, exactly. A little trashy. Little trashy? I love it. <laughs> uh, and then finally, movie going 101. Uh, what, what is your movie ritual at the theater? Um, I, I gotta say, I don't care so much for, uh, candy at the theater. I, as, I, as you eat. Well, I'm pocky eating, chocolates. I'm, I'm eating pocky right now, but pocky a is a, <laughs> I don't know if you know, but pocky is a, a fancy Japanese snack. That so you would not find in a movie. You theater. would not find this in a movie in Japan, maybe. <laughs> right. I don't know if they have this in movie theaters in Japan. But no, I don't. I don't really care for candy at the movies. What I like to do is I, I get pop. Popcorn is extremely important, mm-hmm. obviously. It's hard to say anything interesting about popcorn. Um, <laughs> I think probably a lot of people tell you when they ask this question. I get popcorn. Almost everyone gets popcorn. I mean, how could you not? Yeah, it's pretty great. I'll tell you though, when I'm at a movie theater and they have special flavor powders for the popcorn. Oh, right. Good God. I get so excited. Like about what? That. What's well, doing there? Uh, usually, usually I'll go for the cheese. If there's a cheese, uh-huh. a cheese powder. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. But I'll, I'll go with some kind of urban garlic situation. I don't think I've seen those a lot. What other flavors are available? <laughs> I, is there I, like a ranch dressing or is mm, it, does it get crazy? What else have I seen? I feel like I've seen a sort of, sort of salt and vinegar shake. Okay. Which is kind of a nice. They probably have a heat one. They're probably like a spice sort of... a barbecue, maybe. Okay. That sounds, that sounds gross. Yeah, it does. I wouldn't, go with, I wouldn't go with barbecue popcorn, <laughs> but I, I like, I like a flavor powder and yes, yes, butter, obviously butter. Yeah. I mean, quote unquote butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will get a soda. I will get a small soda because I know it's going to be too big already. Just like a Coke. Mm, I try not to have, I try not to have sugar sodas. Okay. <laughs> but I can't, my body can't afford it anymore. Uh-huh. I can't afford a giant sugar soda. Yeah, I hear you. In my diet. So I'll get a, I'll get a diet Coke even though I don't, don't like it. But it's a, <laughs> but it's a fine line because the, there's a, there's a, you, you have popcorn, which is very salty and then you desperately want a drink of your soda and then you drink a giant soda and you have to go to the bathroom. Right. 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And I'm, I'm old now. So I have a, I have a small bladder and a short attention span. So mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta be careful. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't drink soda at the movie theater at all. I mean, I don't drink soda period much, but I will, uh, still like to sneak in the bottle of water. Uh, yeah, sure. Because I, <laughs> I can afford the bottle of water Sneaking there now, but food. it's, there's just something about it. My mom, I, that brought, brought, brings me back. My mom would sneak in all food, would sneak in everything. Dude, my mom would sneak theater. in popcorn. Like <laughs> a, she would have this huge bag. Yeah. And, uh, she would put a full, home popped bag of popcorn <laughs> where it sat in her purse that was already full of stolen yeah. sweet and lows right. and ketchup gum wrappers and, and uh, uh, anything else she could uh, <laughs> lift from a 
you know, fast food joint. <laughs> That's fantastic. Books of matches, you know, anything. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll just yep. take five of those. No, we would, we would go across the street to the CVS and buy the sodas and uh-huh. uh, watch them call it candy bars and, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, head into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my parents are teachers, so we didn't. My parents were teachers too. Really? Are we the same person? I think so. Did I just take <laughs> off the mask of the giant samurai that I've been fighting and it's me? <laughs> are you about to pull your tooth out? <laughs> my book's <laughs> fantastic. Not. Uh, and where do you sit in the movie? Uh, I like, I like to sit, I don't know, kind of in, kind of in the middle. Sure. I'm, you know, I'm the Sam, Sam Lowry of movie going choices. Mm. I don't, I don't want too much. <laughs> Secretly, maybe I do, but I'm right. just happy where I am. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it in the middle. I can't stand the, the people who sit, who like to sit up close. Do, do you ever talk to anybody who's like, I sit in the front row? Yes. Yeah. Do you know John Ronson? Yeah. He sits in the front row. His. It's so strange and I don't get it. His favorite seat in the movie theater is front row, far left. What? <laughs> it sounds, what does unless he, ha- he was fucking with me, it sounds like a crazy person. Does he have any justification for that? I don't know. I think, well, no, his justification was that he doesn't want to be near anyone else. And I was like, well, that's the way to do that's it. the way to do it. Go yeah. to the worst seat in the movie. Good theater. God. <laughs> I, I was forced to watch him. I don't remember what movie it was, but I was forced to watch a movie from the very front row. I won't do it. I'll leave. I couldn't tell what was going on. Yeah. I literally could not take in the visual information to follow the edits. Yeah. I, won't, I, there's just, I just can't. Yeah. It would ruin my experience. No. I'd rather just wait and see it later. No, I don't mind seeing it from far away. Like if I had to choose between back row and front row, I'll take back row. Oh, yeah. Every single time. Sure. You know what? It's a big screen. Yeah. You're going to be fine. Right. No, almost no matter where you sit, as long as you're not in the first four rows. Agreed. Yeah. Ronson's a weirdo. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks, man. Thank you. This is great. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Thanks. We just shook hands, everybody. <laughs> Alright everyone, that wraps up another Movie Crush episode. Jonathan Colton, I think we can all agree, is a great guy. Uh, super nice, very cool dude, uh, and it was really cool to get his insights on Brazil and um, kind of look at it from some different perspectives than I ever had before. Really good movie, I hope you watched it beforehand, and if not, you should definitely check it out now. It's it's one of the classics. So, uh, big thanks to Jonathan. To find out all things Jonathan Colton, go to jonathancolton.com. Or you can follow him on Twitter, at Jonathan Colton. How easy is that? Or just go check out his music. It's it's pretty great stuff. Uh, you can, you know, get it wherever you get music. And last year, in particular, he had a great new album come out uh, in 2017 called Solid State. So check out Solid State. It's really good. You can also find him on tour, on his tour page. I know he's been doing shows with uh, the lovely and talented Amy Mann lately. So uh, go check out Jonathan if he comes to a town near you. So that is it for this week, everybody. I appreciate you hanging out with us. And until next time, I think we can all agree that if you're in a movie you hate, it's probably okay to get up and just go to another movie and not tell anybody. Right? Right. Movie Crush is produced, edited, engineered, and scored by Noel Brown from our podcast studio at Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life. 
But I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were were just really high risk, unnecessarily so. And a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. Dear Young Rocker is more than just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone. Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.